Please turn with me this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. Our friends, we've begun a new series on this uh, fifth book, the book of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy. And uh, here, as we said last week, uh, the Israelites are gathered together on the east side of Jordan, uh, there in the plains of Moab. It's a vast congregation, two million, maybe more, uh, who are gathered. Maybe the numbers have increased, certainly two million, and they came out of Egypt. It's now 38 years on and likely to be more. They gather there, the old generation of men, the ones who had sinned and didn't believe in the Lord, well, they were forbidden, they were not permitted to enter into Canaan because of their sin. And the new generation has come up, the old generation passed away, and now a new generation of men have come up. Moses is there preaching to them, preaching the Word of God. It's uh, very much similar to what we do today. He's going back over the history, recounting some of the narrative uh, that has happened to them, the events of the uh, wilderness journey. Not everything, but he's picking, he's selecting ones that he can use to reason with the people and to especially equip the people spiritually. That's his concern that when the, this new generation finally do enter into Canaan, they're on the verge of it, they're very near to it now, he doesn't go into any military practices, this is how you should engage the enemy, this is what you should do in the war, this is how you must carry out the battle. He, first of all, is more concerned about their spiritual state. When you go into the land, you must remember to serve the Lord, you must remember him, all that he has done for you. You mustn't forget these things, and you better not turn to idols. You better not pick up the traits and the idolatry of the people who are he was, the Lord was casting out. You're not to become like them, he says. You are to remember your uniqueness, your distinctness as a people of God. I've not treated any other people as I've treated you, God says to them. And therefore, you should love me, and you should uh, honor me, and you should uh, keep my laws. So that's what's in mind here. He's educating uh, this uh, new generation, going back from the past to learn lessons, le learning uh, from the failures, so that they don't make the same mistake again. That's what he's concerned about. Oh, friends, isn't there a lesson for us here? We're parents, we have children, Oh, we have a responsibility, do we not, with those children? We cannot just leave them to the schools. Or we cannot just leave them to the Sunday school even. That's good if they come to Sunday school. But we must also teach them. We must, in our homes, as fathers and mothers, uh, pick up the scriptures and uh, read to them and, and teach them. And uh, there will come a point when they don't want to know these things, maybe. So you must speak to them when they're early. Or you must uh, reach them uh, when you can, while they are willing uh, to sit and to listen. Well, friends, it's so vital for us. They need the help. They need the help, uh, that, uh, that equipping, that spiritual equipping. There's so much, as we say often, there's so much that is a challenge to our young people, so much that is contrary 
to the scriptures, so much that they are being fed in the schools and through the media, so many things that are contrary to the scriptures, how we need to educate our children at home as best as we can to prepare them for society and for life and to help them to stand uh, on their own. Well, we saw uh, last week we left uh, them at uh, Kadesh. There they were at the base of, of Canaan about to enter in, and yet they didn't enter in because of their unbelief, and the Lord told them to do a U-turn and to go back into the south, back towards the Red Sea. Well, we don't know exactly what happened uh, after that. Where did they go? Where did they wander? It's quite possible that they stayed in Kadesh there uh, for quite a long time, for many days. It's quite possible that they were there or that they perhaps even wandered south and wandered from place to place aimlessly and then regrouped at Kadesh and regrouped there together. And from there, perhaps the word of the Lord came to them to move into uh, the promised land. 38 years they spent wandering here and there and everywhere and getting nowhere, going round and round in circles. Well, now is the time that old generation has passed away and it's time for them to go in. Verse uh, 2, The Lord spake unto me, saying, You have compassed this mountain long enough, turn you uh, northward. And that's, uh, that's the command that finally comes. They were to go through Mount, uh, uh, Mount Seir to, on the east and then make their way downward south and then uh, take a, a, a turn to the left if you're coming southwards uh, at Ezion Geba and skirt round uh, Mount Seir. Now they did try to actually get into, uh, into uh, uh, Seir through a different route and we'll mention that in a moment. But before we, we, we talk about that, 38 years, friends, they were doing, accomplishing nothing. 38 years wasted, really, we could say. A lost period of time. Going from place uh, to place, to and fro, but without any real advance, without any real progress. Languishing in the, in the wilderness. 38 years. That's a long period of time, isn't it? and not accomplishing anything significant, just living from day to day. We could say, just waiting to die. Waiting to die, that's it. Well, that was our life, isn't it, we could say. That was our life before uh, we became Christians, before we were converted to the Lord. What was it, friends? It wasn't very much, really. It was like we were wondering. We look back on it now, and we think, well, those years, they were wasted years. We wish we come to know the Lord earlier. I've told you before, I think, of a pastor, and he came to know, he was asked by a, a lady, when did you come to know the Lord? And he said, I came to know the Lord when I was 14 years old. And the lady said, oh, that's good, you came to know the Lord so young. And he said, 14 years, 14 years of my life, I wasted in unbelief. And even though know, he did come to the Lord so young, he still felt that even those 14 years were short. Well, how long was it before you came to the Lord or I came to the Lord? Maybe it's a lot longer uh, than that. But we look back and we think, oh, it was just, what was it? Just going about. Perhaps we accomplished some things, 
some small things. Perhaps we obtain for ourselves a good education, a degree or something that we could find useful. But most of our time, well, it was just being involved, isn't it, in mundane things of life. Watching lots of TV, surfing the internet, playing computer games maybe, maybe that was our lot. Just trying to have a good time, no real purpose in life, going from pleasure to pleasure, seeking these earthly things, and then still feeling life was meaningless. Wasted, friends, because we didn't know the Lord. Wasted because we didn't worship Him. We had no love for Him then. We didn't know his grace and his help. And we feel, oh, if I'd only known him earlier in life, I wish it, it happened. But we look back and we say, it didn't happen that way. But we look back and think on it that way. Going through life in a mundane way. What is it? Just waiting to die. So many people are still in that position. Just going through day after day after day. Mundane things. Waiting, for the, waiting to pass away. There's more to life than that, friends. If you are unconverted, if you don't know the Lord, come to him. You will find that he will give you meaning and purpose in life. But here, we see uh, my first point is uh, restraint and uh, respect. And we see this in verse 4. The Lord commanded the Israelites, saying, You had passed through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. Here, here were the children of Israel. As they're making their, their way uh, towards the promised land, the first three countries that they're going to come across all belong, uh, all in some way belong to uh, re relatives of them from the past. The first one, uh, uh, the Edomites, well, they were the descendants of Esau. And then the Moabites and the Ammonites would come along, and they're the descendants, as you know, of Lot. And here the Lord spells out very clearly to the children of Israel how they are to treat and to deal and to interact with these groups. They are to show great restraint as they are going along their borders. They are to show great kindness to them. So on the one hand, they are to show restraint, and on the other hand, they are to show respect to those people. That's what he wants to uh, impress upon them. Now, the first country that they, uh, they come across is uh, Edom and the children of Esau. Now, if you read Numbers 20, you'll know that Moses, when he got the command to go up to the Promised Land, he first tried to go through the Mount Seir, through the land of Edom. There's a road called the King's Highway. And that's an easier way. And you can go more directly through it. But the king of, uh, the, of, uh, of the Edomites wouldn't allow them to go through. He was afraid. Here is this big group, two million plus people uh, coming through my border. They say they'll live peacefully. How do I know? How do I know they will keep their word? They may be invading. They may want to take over my land and possess my land. I, I cannot allow them to come in. They were afraid. They were a much smaller group than the Israelites. 
And so they refused. And when Moses tried uh, in a peaceful way, in a reasonable way to uh, say, let us go through, we'll pay for everything, we won't, we'll, keep, we'll keep to the road. Well, the, the Edomites came out as an army uh, to do battle and said, no, you're not coming anywhere near our border. And it was at this point that the Lord tells them to pass uh, around the coast, as it were, around the borders uh, of Mount Seir, which meant going southwards and then coming all the way back up northwards uh, towards the promised land, which would take them or add another two weeks at least onto uh, their journey. But uh, here they are told, as you're passing by these countries, the Edomites, take good heed unto yourselves. Meddle not with them. Meddle, that word means excite. Don't excite them. Don't stir them up. Don't provoke them as you're going along. Take caution. Be very careful how you deal with them. Exercise restraint. You're stronger than Edomites. You're mightier in number. You're more able to uh, eliminate them in, in a battle. They're going to feel intimidated. But you mustn't misuse and abuse that power that you have. Don't take advantage of them. Don't use your power to attack them. Don't try and reclaim their land. Leave them untouched. That's the message of God to the Israelites. Pass by peacefully. Don't meddle with them. Don't covet their land. I've given it to the Edomites for a possession. Furthermore, verse 6, if you need food, you must pay for it. And if you need water, you must pay for it. Don't, Don't come to them as such, as if you're beggars, professional beggars. You have everything. Don't pretend that you don't have everything and that you have been through the wilderness and everything is is uh, ragged and you run out of supplies? No, he says, for verse 7, God, uh, for I have blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knoweth the way through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. I have provided everything that you need. Well, verse 8, the people obeyed the Lord. And uh, we see we passed by from our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir through the way of the plain from Elath and from Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. They lived, uh, they tr- uh, marched peacefully without troubling the Edomites at all. A little later, they received the very same command regarding the Moabites and the Ammonites, the descendants of Lot. Chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, nor neither contend with them in battle. For I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given our unto the children of Lot for a possession. Then verse 19. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them. For I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. Don't distress them. Again, similar word. Don't agitate them. Don't harass these people. Don't put them under duress as you're passing by. And once again, the children of Israel obeyed and passed safely past these lands. Now, friends, there are lessons for us from uh, this incident and from these instructions. If only on an international basis, countries would take uh, this advice. 
countries which are great and powerful, uh, if only they would show restraint in the way they treat the less powerful countries, we would live in a more peaceful world. We would live in a better world if the, the ones with a greater uh, arsenal and a great, greater number of tanks and a greater number of fighter planes and so on, and soldiers and armies which they parade so proudly uh, through the streets, if only these mightier countries would show restraint towards the lesser countries, surely we would live in a better world. Surely we would, there would be uh, less wars. They wouldn't intimidate, they wouldn't bully, they wouldn't invade these people. I think we all know, don't we, that in uh, a, a country, a Western countries sometimes who are economically strong, what do they do? They bully other countries. They bully those poorer countries. They threaten them uh, to cut, threaten to cut their funding if they don't accept whole scale what? The LGBT agenda. We see this happening. We know it's happening uh, across the countries. We've heard of it. You must accept our moral code, uh, they say, otherwise we're not going to fund you. We're not going to pour money into the country unless you change your moral stand and accept the LGBT plus way of thinking. That's been said to, the, to people. What's that? It's using abuse of power, isn't it, friends? Or how we need uh, to restrain uh, power. You think of Christ. I think of our Savior who had all power at his fingertips. And you look at him in the last days of his life and you see him in Gethsemane where those soldiers came to arrest him. And what did he do? They all fell down initially before him. And then Peter got out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers using the sword to defend the Lord. And the Lord said, I don't need, I don't need your help. I have power to call uh, a, a legion of angels to help me. But he didn't. He restrained himself because his mission is to go to the cross, to die on the cross. He holds back even though he has the power to do it. And then you think of how he restrained himself when he was before the Sanhedrin and that soldier who, or that person next to him who slapped him unfairly. And he could have, again, uh, responded by, uh, by calling down fire upon him or something, taking his life from it. He didn't. He showed great restraint. And then before Pilate, his Pilate said, well, don't you know how much power I have? I have power over you. Really? No, you don't. He didn't. The one who was more powerful was standing in front of Pilate. What a great self-control. What great restraint he showed. Uh, for the purpose of going uh, to Calvary. Well, friends, that's, a good, that's the way uh, power should be managed, power should be controlled. Uh, sadly, even when we bring it to, into the church, we see that power can be mismanaged and can be abused even in churches. Sadly, today, we hear even of pastors who are abusing the power and using the power and their position and their office to bully the congregation. That should never happen. The, the, the role of a pastor is to feed the flock of God, to care for the flock of God, never to intimidate the flock, never to uh, urge them to do something for his sake and for his benefit, for his glory. And that's, what, that's what's happening. So many, sadly, are intimidating others. They've lost their respect, restraint, and respect for the sheep. That's what's, that should be 
the role of a pastor. That's how uh, it should happen. And even amongst the fellowship, isn't it? We need to show great restraint on our part in our dealings with one another. How easily a word spoken out of turn, an angry word, can hurt another person, can affect another person. A harsh word can lead to a conflict in a church, and that conflict may even lead to the church being divided and broken up. It happens all the time, sadly. But just may start, go back to where did it all begin? It began with a harsh, unkind word, a word spoken out of turn. We need, as the Lord says here, to take good heed to ourselves and how we speak and how we act. Then there's the home, isn't there, friends? One spouse may be mightier than another person, may have more power than another person. Don't think straight away, oh, it's the man. It's the man who also has the power. Oh, that's how we we think generally. It may be the, the, the wife. It may be the wife who has more power. It may be the wife who misuses her power. We, we, we cannot say for sure. But one spouse may be mightier than the other. Physically, it may be so. Or it may be so even intellectually. Or it may be so even in the terms of competence. And they might use, it's very easy to slip into using that intelligence that you have more uh, to bully your spouse or to intimidate them in some way or other. We want to be careful how we use the gifts that God has given us. We don't want to belittle our, our loved ones. We don't want to belittle them and intimidate them in front of others, but to respect them. Restraint on one hand, respect on the other. Do you remember how Peter put it? Treat husbands are to treat their wives as the weaker vessel. That doesn't mean physically weaker. But it means, though, actually, if you go back to the Greek, it's talking about as a, as a very precious vase that you take care of and that you look after and that uh, is very precious to you and you deal gently with that uh, precious item. That's how you are to treat your wife. Respect and care and love. And of course, the husband, uh, the wife has to reverence her husband, has to respect her husband, has to obey her husband as well. Well, restraint also, this restraint and respect is with children and parents. Parents and children together. The children are to respect their parents whom God has placed over them, to love them, to listen to them, to, to be careful not to hurt them with their words, and vice versa, the parents with the children also. It works both ways. We're careful how we deal with one another in the home. Well, friends, let's, let's move on. Respect from respect and restraint. We see here in chapter 2 and verse 24, the scene uh, changes. So far, so good. It's been a peaceful journey uh, all the way. It's been peaceful. But now they come into the region of the Amorites, another group of people, and uh, things change. Peace is going to give way to war. Uh, Verse 24, rise up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given into thine hand Sion, the king of uh, the, the Amorite, the king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. This is the, the battle, first battle they're going to face, and they're going to uh, even be given the land of the Amorites. This day, verse 25, will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee 
upon the nations that are under the whole heaven who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. So here, this is a war that's uh, not uh, initiated by the Israelites, but by the, the Amorites. And just as before, but just as before, really, uh, Moses, when he approached this land, he did the same as he did with the other lands. He gave them offers of peace. And he offered to them, look, again, you can read through the passage in your own time. He says, we'll go through on, on a peaceful way. We'll pay for what we buy. We won't, we won't disturb you. We'll go peacefully through. But they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't allow them uh, to go uh, through, even though they made that similar offer. Verse uh, 30, Sion, but Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. And then in verse 32, Then Sion, Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz. And the result, the Lord God, our God, delivered him before us, and we smote him and his sons and all his people, and we took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left nothing, none to remain, only the cattle we took for a prey unto ourselves and the spoil of the cities which we took. They won the battle and uh, they obtained the land. The Lord gave them the land. Now, just before we move on, uh, there's that word. The incident here may uh, cause you some concern that, uh, the, verse 34, that the people were destroyed of the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. It sounds like ethnic cleansing, as if they've gone in, wiped out everyone, and then uh, took over their land. But it probably didn't quite happen like that. I don't have much time to talk about this in detail. But it's really, it didn't quite happen that way. It was more likely, the word destroy there means uh, to banish, as well as to destroy, to kill. It also means to banish. And it's more than likely that these, the men and the women and the little ones, were banished from every city, banished from the land, rather than killed and destroyed. Yes, the military personnel, the soldiers who fought, they were killed. They were destroyed in that way, but the women and the children and the other men, uh, well, they were banished uh, from uh, the land, and the land became uh, Israel's. The, the same scenario is repeated when they come to the next land, which is Bashan, chapter 3, verse 1. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. And the Lord said unto me, Fear him not, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into thy hand. And thou shalt do unto him as thou didst unto Sion, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So two battles, two victories, and the land becomes theirs. But the interesting thing that I want to point out here, the thing that stands out there is in verse 30. Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as appears this day. What does this mean? That God hardened uh, his spirit. God hardened his heart. Is it saying 
that God made him obstinate, that God made him so uncharitable towards Israel that he could do nothing else but uh, fight against uh, Israel. Is it that because God hardened his heart, he had no choice? That's what he had to do. Well, no, friends, that's not what it's saying. When the Bible speaks about God hardening somebody's heart, it usually comes at the end of a process, a process of hardening that began by the person themselves, a person that began, a person that began to, uh, to reject uh, the calls of the Lord, a person who uh, re- desired uh, uh, to live uh, in sin and to go on in a sinful way, day after day after day, continually suppressing his conscience. His conscience is telling him, don't live like that. You need to live for God. You need to repent. You need to believe in the Lord. But he goes on uh, refusing to listen uh, to that voice of conscience, refusing to accept uh, that he must uh, repent. And as he goes on in sin, he becomes worse and worse from day to day. He's gradually hardening himself. It begins with the man or the woman hardening themselves. And the wooing, the gentle calls of the Spirit of God to that person to repent and turn, there's forgiveness with God, is rejected. It's put to one side. Not just once, again and again, repeatedly, it's rejected. And what happens to that person? He's not left the same. His heart becomes harder and harder and harder after every rejection until he's gone too far. And in the eyes of God, he's gone too far. And that's when God comes in. And that's when God steps in. And that's when God hardens him too so that he cannot repent. And he's ripe for judgment. And that's what's happened with this king. Uh, he so uh, went on and on in sin. The land where they, which they uh, took here, well, the Amor- Amorites, it was filled with uh, gross immorality and idolatry that uh, really was, was, was dreadful. They, they were ripe for judgment. They were deserving of judgment. They were deserving to be expelled for, from the land. And so judgment fell upon him. This kind of hardening, we refer to it as judicial blindness. Judicial blindness. And the same thing uh, which happened as we, we've been studying with Pharaoh in Egypt. So that's what's in, in mind here. Isn't this what's happened to our nation? Some people think that's, uh, that we are under the judgment of judicial blindness. That the people of this land, the native people of this land, don't want to know the gospel anymore in bulk. There are still a few thank- we're thankful, but many people think that uh, our nation is under this kind of judgment. Let me give you an example. The other day, I was offered a, a, a track. There's a, there a man, an Englishman. He was walking past with his two young girls, and I just offered them an invitation to the Sunday school, and he turned around, and he gave me such vitriol, not against me, but against God. Such things have made me shudder came out of his mouth. Just, I only offered him an invitation for his children to come and hear the word. Oh, oh so much else I cannot repeat. But I've, it's made me shudder for a while. That's the state of things. Why? In such a... Well, friends, how vital it is for us uh, to, to respond 
to the Lord when He calls us. Are you, are you here today? You're not yet a believer. You're not yet a Christian. But you feel it's the right thing. This is the way I should go. The Spirit of God is moving in your heart saying, calling you. Friend, repent. Turn your life over to Jesus Christ. Delay no longer. Don't put it off till tomorrow. And you may say, tomorrow. Tomorrow. The Holy Spirit says, today, today. And you say, no, tomorrow. Well, what's going to happen to you? Tomorrow you may not feel the same as you do today. And you may lose that conviction. And you may lose that sense of persuasion. And you may lose the sense that this is what I need to do. And this is the right thing to do. The longer you delay and reject the Lord, you're hardening your own heart. So we need to turn to Him when He calls us. My friends, I must move on. Uh, to one final point, and that is the prayer which God did not answer. In chapter 3, in verses uh, 21 to 29, uh, we see uh, this. Moses now tells the people a personal anecdote, how God dealt with him. Oh, he longed to enter and to lead the promised land. He longed to lead the people into the promised land, and he prayed earnestly for this uh, privilege. I besought the Lord, chapter 3, verse 23, at that time, saying, O Lord God, Thou hast begun to show Thy servant Thy greatness and Thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do, and can do according to Thy works and according to Thy might? I pray Thee, let me go over and see that good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. He desired to go, but the Lord had already told him he would not enter. And so God didn't hear his prayer this time. Back at Kadesh, he had provoked the people, or rather being provoked by the people. He spoke, you remember, angrily and proudly. And uh, he said to them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch water for you out of the rock? And then he acted in unbelief, striking the rock twice instead of speaking to it. But it was a very public sin. The public disobedience on Moses' part, and really out of character for him, but uh, the people finally got to him, I think. But he, uh, because he was such a public sin, he, a public judgment fell upon him. Everyone was talking in their tents. Did you see what Moses did? Did you hear what he said? And everyone, it brought dishonor to the Lord. We read verse 26. The Lord himself was angry with Moses for your sakes, and would not hear him. The judgment fell upon him, that fell upon him for his public sin was to be excluded from the promised land. Friends, God is no respecter of persons. Sin is sin. Sin is a terrible thing in God's sight, which must be God, must be judged by God. Moses, of course, was forgiven. We know that. But the consequences of his sin remained. He still cannot enter Canaan. Oh, friends, what should happen? What should happen when a pastor or a leader or an elder in the church or a Sunday school teacher, what happens if they publicly sin against the Lord? What happens if they fall into some serious sin, illicit relationship, if the misuse of the church funds to, uh, to uphold their own uh, life and their own luxury, life of luxury. It's scandalous, friends. It brings dishonor to Christ. 
The unbelievers will be talking about it and mocking it. We knew you were hypocrites. Look, see that pastor, see what he's done, see the elder, how he's fallen. Brings dishonor to our Savior. It's scandalous, friends, and it deserves really uh, the, the person who has brought such public shame and blaspheme, uh, caused people to blaspheme the name of Christ. Well, he must step down. He must step aside from his office. Yes, he's forgiven if he repents, but he cannot continue in office. But what do we see today? We see people forgiving and restoring people to office. It's happening again and again. We're hearing these things. People, pastors, commit some terrible thing and then being restored back into the same place. Publicly forgiven, publicly re-accepted. That's not how it should be. Oh, friends, I close just with this verse 27. Uh, God's gracious uh, act towards Moses. The Lord permitted Moses to go up to the top of uh, Pisgah mountain and lift up thine eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and behold it with thine eyes for thou shalt not go over this Jordan. He's not tantalizing Moses with this view but he's giving him a very satisfying view, a deeply satisfying. As Moses on the high mountain, he longed to go in, he couldn't go in, but now he can see the whole land, he can see the whole, the lay of the land, and he can even, with God's help, see as far as Lebanon to the north, and it sees it's a goodly land, and he's thrilled, and he's satisfied with what he has seen, and it's a blessing uh, to uh, his soul. Well, friends, I must conclude, but uh, the Lord will be with us. The Lord is with us in our pilgrimage if we are His. The Lord uh, will be with us all the way to heaven, to glory, just like He was with them. He will provide for our every need. We can trust Him. We can depend on Him. We shall lack nothing as we do. Only let us be very careful how we live. Let us take good heed uh, to ourselves. Let us also show restraint and respect as we're going along. And the Lord will bless us in our way. Let's close by singing our final hymn, number 450. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, 450.